Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Over the last 13 months, some of the world's great rock artists have died. Thursday of this week, of course, it was uh, David Crosby. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and then eventually Young. On January 10th, guitarist Jeff Beck of the Yardbirds and the Jeff Beck Group. Beck is often listed as one of the top five rock guitarists ever. Another rock artist who have died since uh, January 2022, so just over a year, include Christine McVie of Fleetwood Mac, Meatloaf, Jim Seals, Ronnie Hawkins, Jerry Lee Lewis. And uh, I want to talk about the, uh, the influence of the rockers of the 60s and the 70s who increasingly are dying. They're getting older. And I just didn't realize this until I looked at the story. David Crosby, 81. Uh, so many others in their 70s and early 80s. Alan Cross, broadcaster, writer on music, weekdays at 102.1 The Edge in Toronto, the host of the ongoing series of new music, Sundays on 102.1 The Edge, and of course, a journal of musicalthings.com. Alan, thank you for coming on. Uh, there's a, a number of artists I'd like to talk to you about and just their influence on all of us. But David Crosby, when you think of David Crosby, what comes to mind? What's most enduring about him? Well, the fact that he made it into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame twice, first with the Birds and then with Crosby, Stills, and Nash, uh, two you know, incredibly important bands in the pantheon of American rock. The, uh, the Birds were this jangly sort of California band that uh, turned some Dylan covers and some originals into something pretty awesome. And then, of course, uh, he was fired. David Crosby was fired from that band because he couldn't get along with Graham Nash. And then later, they end up in Crosby, Stills, and Nash together. Uh, it, it was, um, and, and, uh, uh, they made their debut at, at Woodstock in 1969 without ever having recorded anything. And that first album with Sweet Judy Blue, Blue Eyes on it and all the other hits that came along later, sometimes with Neil Young, sometimes not, it just, uh, you know, a tremendous foundation for what uh, American rock and roll became in the 1970s. It was that California music scene as well, right? Uh, yeah, he was very big uh, part of the uh, the Laurel Canyon scene. If you've seen the the, uh, the yes. HBO series, yeah. very good. Um, he dated Joni Mitchell. That ended badly. He never really got over over her. But he, you know, he was part of that group that uh, there was a bunch of them that just cranked out song after song, hit after hit. Uh, during that special time in, in California. And their songs were, were different. Their styles were different. You think of the Beach Boys and then uh, uh, the Mamas and the Papas. D- different sounds, but shared interests, and, and, sh- and they shared their music, didn't they? Uh, they did. I mean, it was, it was almost a, a commune type of living, but, you know, everybody knew everybody. Everybody hung out with everybody. Everybody wrote songs with everybody else. And that eventually led to the Crosby, Stills, and Nash pairing. And... Uh, um, in Nash. Um, and one of the things that, that really, I guess what they would have done is, is practice their harmonies. Um, I mean, the birds had some great harmonies, but CSN was just absolutely fantastic. David Crosby provided the low end of that, uh, the grits, and the other two guys were the mid and the high range. And it just, it just went together so well that uh, we'd never hear, heard anything like that. Again, we go back to that first album from 69, I guess it is, uh, nobody had heard rock and roll, folk rock harmonies like that before. Yeah, I uh, had the pleasure of getting to know Barry McGuire, um, Eve of Destruction. And uh, he would come on this program quite frequently, 
And he actually re-recorded it. It sounded better when he was 78 than when he was 28. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, David Crosby was, was uh, continuing to make music. He, he said he was retired from, uh, from touring um, early last year, but April or May of last year. But then in December, he said, you know what? I can't stay away from it. I, I've got to make music. Art is the only thing that endures. I'm thinking about forming a new band. But then he was apparently quite ill. And um, the story I'm hearing from a bunch of people is he may have he may have died of COVID, and that's not terribly surprising, given his comorbidities. Remember, in 1994, he had a liver transplant. Uh, he had ruined his, his original liver with uh, drugs and alcohol and hepatitis C, uh, and then he had type two diabetes, which was pretty serious. Had to lose a ton of weight to keep that under control. So it's it's not surprising that uh, you know. Uh, maybe even a mild COVID infection might have got to him. Yeah. McGuire told me an interesting story uh, that he, he used to hang out with the mamas and papas. And he said they were out on uh, California freeway on a Volkswagen bus, which they, they all had each band, I think, had to have a Volkswagen bus. So he was in the bus. They were going about 60 to 70 miles an hour. And suddenly, uh, Mama Cass says, where's McGuire? The bus had never stopped. The Volkswagen bus had never come to a stop. Where's McGuire? McGuire was up on the roof. He'd gotten, <laughs> climbed it through this, I don't know if it was a factory uh, installed sunroof or whether they'd done it or somebody just cut a hole in the roof. But he was up there enjoying the scenery. And uh, he did say that he might have been under the influence of something or other at the time. But the stories oh, yeah, yeah, the stories that, that came along with them were as much a part of their legend as, as their music, I think. Well, it was the height of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um <laughs> And everybody partook in, in, in everything. So, yeah, there were, there were lots of stories. Some of them can't be told because <laughs> there are still too many people that are, are still alive and could be heard by them. Uh, I, I interviewed David Crosby once uh, at the Oakville place. He had a, there was a film based on, on a, biographical, a, a biographical, biographical film based on his life. And uh, he was supposed to join us via Skype. Well, that didn't work, of course, because Skype never works properly when you need it to. So uh, he phoned my my my, uh, my iPhone, and I held up. We conducted the interview with me um, holding the microphone into the bottom of my phone, so the audience could hear him. Oh, great! That would have been high tech in the '60s. Well, yeah, it would have been, but this was uh, 2019. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, there was there was the California sound, there was the Liverpool sound, there was uh, Detroit, and there was this Jeff Beck, Yardbirds, and uh, the Jeff Beck Band. Alan, when you hear Jeff Beck, what do you hear? Very tasteful playing. The, the man was extremely um, judicious with the notes that he used. He only used, used the notes that, that uh, were absolutely necessary. And he is an example of how tone is not in the guitar. Tone is in the fingers. You could give him any beat-up guitar, and just by the way he manipulated it, you knew it was Jeff Beck. He had this, this sound and this ability and this, this tastefulness. Um, yes, he could rip off a solo like anybody else, but there was something almost jazz-like with his playing because it was the space between the notes or the notes that weren't there that made a lot of his playing so wonderfully evocative. Um, there was uh, one time, 1983, Ronnie Lane's Arms concert, uh, where... Beck was on stage with both Eric Clapton and Jimmy Page. All three guys used to be in the Yardbirds, all considered to be the top three guitarists in the world. And if you watch the video online, you will see Jeff Beck completely blow away both those other, both those other guys. He really, he wasn't um, the, the big star. I mean, 
uh, Jimmy Page will always have Led Zeppelin. Eric Clapton will always have all his solo success. Uh, Jeff Beck was, wasn't a frontman. He was a guitarist. He played with any number of people, um, as well as his solo stuff. But he never sang. He would get somebody like Rod Stewart to sing for him. And he would let his guitar playing do the talking. Less is more. Meatloaf, Ronnie Hawkins, Christine McVie. Couldn't be any different, the music, but it's all classic rock and roll. And it's all going to stay with us, Alan. Uh, context on these three artists. Uh, they came to us during a time where music was absolutely everything. It was the main driver of popular culture. And all three of them left us with a tremendous legacy of, of songs and also influence. So we're, we're never going to forget somebody like Ronnie Hawkins, for example, probably one of the most important people in uh you know, 50s and 60s rock and roll, just by virtue of the fact that he introduced the world to the band. Um, Christine McVie, she was the person who wrote the majority of the big hits for uh, Fleetwood Mac, um, you know, Songbird, something, you know, it just goes on forever. Uh, Meatloaf, uh, he, he wasn't a songwriter, but he was a heck of a performer, together with his partner Jim Snyman, uh, has one of the biggest selling records of all time in Bad Out of Hell from 1977. He also had a couple of other big selling albums. So, you know, again, these people were part of our cultural fabric and will remain that way because of the art that they left behind. And there were others who uh, passed away who weren't necessarily huge names throughout the world of music. Um, Dan McCafferty, Jim Seals of Seals and Cross, and uh, Robbie Bachman was with BTO, of course, for... So many years as their drummer in the, in the Canadian Music Hall of Fame. We look at these these artists of the 60s and the 70s. As I said earlier, they're getting older and they're, they're passing away, but their music stays with us. Alan, how enduring do you think the, 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 the music of the 60s and the 70s, maybe even into the 80s, is going to prove to be long-term? Uh, quite a bit. And the answer is a little bit different than you might expect. What we're seeing is these very large corporations like Hypnosis, Primary Wave, Concord, uh, and a few others, who are buying up these catalogs of these heritage artists. Bob Dylan sold his for about $450 million. Uh, Bruce Springsteen got $500, $550 million. Uh, members of, various members of Fleetwood Mac have sold their piece of the family business for hundreds of millions of dollars. So we have these uh, big companies who believe these songs have legs. Uh, at the very least, they have 70 years after the death of the primary, of the final composer of a song, to exploit it before the song enters the public domain. So that's a fairly long time, but they have to make their money back, hundreds of millions of dollars in money uh, that has to be returned to their shareholders, and they have to make a little bit of a profit. So they're going to do whatever they have to do to make sure that these songs that they own live on for a very, very long time, perhaps a lot longer than they would have otherwise. Uh, so what we're going to see in the coming decades is uh, a renewed interest in these songs, whether it means, uh, you know, it could be anything from uh, having somebody cover like a Fleetwood Mac song uh, and get the royalties from that to maybe commissioning a, a Broadway musical to doing a biopic to charging for samples to, you know, all these sorts of things. So these songs, these artists are going to live for a lot longer because of the financial imperative to make the money back on what is now a market worth oh, two and a half, three billion dollars. If you want to hear more, 
Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 